Well, hello there, and welcome to Disturbing Behaviors. I'm Amanda. I'm Denise. And again, this is Disturbing Behaviors. So today we're going to be talking about the crimes of Eileen Warnos. I think Denise had something she wanted to say first. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this, and I had meant to talk about it when we were talking about her early childhood trauma. She actually had an opportunity to kind of escape. This is really going to lead back to the psychology of it. In 1976, she hitchhiked to Florida, and she met a gentleman who was 69 years old, and he was the Yacht Club president, Louis Gratzfell, and they got married. Like, they actually got married. In their marriage made this is high society papers so she had met somebody that could financially take care of her like she would never have to worry about anything else ever in her life and she basically self-destructed which is very common for victims of abuse you know whether it's physical abuse emotional abuse or sexual abuse which miss eileen was all three so i'm not shocked that she self-sabotaged but it's kind of really sad that she had this opportunity where she was married to a stable you know by all accounts upstanding guy you know there's i tried looking at him up to see you know is there anything like scandalous there's nothing scandalous there he was not somebody who was abusive so he was basically not her type because he was not abusive he was supportive but their marriage was annulled after nine weeks, only nine weeks, because Eileen was basically violent with him. Like she was lashing out at him. And I mean, we kind of laugh about that, but it's like, wow, you know, and I am somebody who, who will say that domestic violence can occur against men just as it occurs against women. We just Absolutely. have to hear more about women than we do about men. That. We can have a whole other conversation about how men don't report domestic violence or sexual assaults, but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, she, basically she got arrested because she was hitting him with his own cane and like she would hit him for money and he would just give her the money. And I was like, but he would have given her the money even if she hadn't hit him. It's almost like the only thing Eileen knew was violence. The only thing she knew was force because she's never had that healthy relationship model for her at any point in time in her life. Did she have right. something? I think it's embedded yeah. in most people's psyche who are victims of abuse, especially as much abuse as she went through. Oh, yeah. They don't deserve anything better. Exactly. So they'll self-sabotage. Exactly. Like I am unworthy of love. I am on, you know, there's that self-sabotage that comes into it where it's so ingrained. Like you said, it's so ingrained into their psychology that they don't deserve happiness. They don't deserve anything good happening to them because it's never happened to them. And so in that situation, they're unable to accept love. And you just can't help but wonder if like maybe at some point in time some intervention had happened and she was able to have a successful marriage with this guy we wouldn't be sitting here talking about her crimes right you know i think it's just something significant to mention because it's really kind of glossed over when you know you're looking at what's going on with her if you look at the media it's a little blurb it was only nine weeks but you sit there and you think if that those nine weeks had gone differently and again, we're back in the 70s. It really wasn't therapy, wasn't a thing, which is sad. She but honestly, even if it was a thing, I'm not sure that she's the kind of person who would have sought help. Exactly. But with his financial standings, she would have had the ability. Do you know what I'm saying? I think right. there would have been more options. But, you know, it's really kind of sad that she had this opportunity to walk away from that life life of sex work, that life on the street, that life of, you know, abuse and her alcohol use, her drug use. And she just self-sabotaged. And that leads us to where we are today. And I just wanted to talk about that real quickly, because it is something that, you know, you kind of think about she had this opportunity. And you think about it so many times that you're like, well, if I had taken a left instead of a right, how different would my life have been? You know? Mm -hmm. And almost the butterfly effect, if you will. If I had done this instead of that, where would I be today? 
So, yeah. and of course, I think about stuff like that, different timelines and things like that. But I also smoke a lot of weed, so I'm going to have those kind of <laughs> thoughts. So, and yes, you can leave that in. I don't care. I'll talk about that. So. <laughs> That's kind of the fun part of me. But right? yes, you know. But I do think about things like that. And it just it was kind of just sticking with me, and I was like, all right. Next time we talk, I need to talk about that because she did have an opportunity. And unfortunately, with just her psychology and her personality, she self-sabotaged. And now we are here to talk about what happened. All right. Well, thank you for that information. So I'm going to go ahead and begin starting with her crimes and kind of a timeline of what happened. So. On December 1st, 1989, Sergeant Bob Kelly of the Volusia County Sheriff's Department found an abandoned car in a wooded area off Ormond Beach. Twelve days later, the decomposed body of 52-year-old Richard Mallory would be found near 95 in Daytona Beach, 10 miles south of where his car had been found. He had been shot multiple times in the chest with a 22 caliber gun and covered with a piece of rug. Thus began a multi-unit, year-long manhunt for what would come to be known as America's first female serial killer. So we heard in our previous episode about the horrendous childhood of Eileen Warnos. Many people speculate this first murder of Richard Malloy opened the door to the following six murders. So here's a timeline of the crimes according to an article published on December 14th, 1990 by the Tampa Tribune. I can't speak today. It's okay. Huh? I said, that's okay. Yeah. You didn't get it's chased like, by a rooster. It was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> that's my new standard. Whether or not I get chased by a rooster. And, yes, and you know what? And if anybody ever has questions about these little side stories, I will be happy to have little statements and little shows about that and, you know, talk about the bizarreness that is my life. So. Well, I think we'll be doing that on hopefully when we get a few more listeners. Yes. <laughs> we'll have some. We'll do some live exclusive. moments. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do some exclusive videos or audios or whatever. Yeah. You know what? We reach a million listeners. We will do a live where I am eating edibles and you can ask me anything. How's that for a goal? I like, I like that. <laughs> All right. So that's a million subscribers you heard. Yes. Yes, that's it. All that's right. a bar. I set it up high, <laughs> like my ass. So. Like right. <laughs> that's that's a really high bar. <laughs> have you seen how much weed I go through? <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine. Have, actually, that's all. See, okay. You know, that's when Dave's not there helping you go through it. <laughs> yeah, that's when Dave's just kind of looking at me, going, "I'm not talking to you right now." Like, yeah. whatever the fuck you got going on, I'm gonna be outside. <laughs> Bye. And we can talk about right. his entrance into uh, edibles and his magic carpet oh. ride that he took. So, Oh, that is a funny, funny story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's a timeline of the crimes, according to an article published on December 14th, 1990, by the Tampa Tribune. Following the discovery of Richard Malloy's body, four months would go by before the next victim would be found. But on April 6th, 1990, a truck driver would discover the body of Douglas Giddens in a wooded lot on the north side of Ocala. Douglas was a pepper farmer from Willacoochee, Georgia. Willacoochee! The whole kind of name. Yeah, Willacoochee. <laughs> uh, who had disappeared on April while traveling from Fort Lauderdale to Nashville. Uh, he had been shot with a thirty-eight caliber, which was believed to be his own weapon. On May 5th, 1990, the body of an unidentified man is found in a remote area near I-75 in Adele, Georgia. The victim had a tattoo of a panther with a curved dagger through his head. He had been shot to death with a small caliber weapon, believed to be the same 22 used to kill Richard Malloy. On June 1st, 1990, the body of an Ocoee construction worker David Spears, is found on a dirt road just north of the Citrus-Hernando County line. The body was partially clothed and decomposed. Spears had last been seen leaving work near Orlando on May 19, 1990. Five days later, on June 6th, 
The decomposed body of a nude man is found by a fisherman in a thicket near State Road 52 and I-75 in Pasco County. The man was later identified as 40-year-old Charles Cascanon of Missouri. On July 4, 1990, a break in the case arose when a car belonging to a missing missionary named Peter Sems, who was last seen leaving his home for Arkansas or New Jersey to visit relatives on June 7th, was found in Marion County. Witnesses told authorities they saw two women drive it through a fence. Based on the accounts of the witnesses, sketches were drawn at the suspects and distributed to media. I'm going to post the sketches on our Instagram and Facebook pages, so you can take a look at those. On August 4th, 1990, the badly decomposed body of Troy Eugene Burris is found by campers in the forest. Burris, a 50-year-old sausage salesman from Ocala, had been missing since July 31st. He had been reported missing following the discovery of his delivery truck in the Ocala National Forest. On September 12th, the body of Charles Richard Humphreys of Crystal River was found by two bicyclists southwest of Ocala. He had been last heard from at 4 p.m. on September 11th when he called a Somerville office. On November 19, 1990, two events actually occurred. So the nude body of Walter Gino Antonio is found in a desolate hunting road in Dixie County. Additionally, an abandoned vehicle belonging to a NASA subcontracting engineer named Curtis Reed was also found in Orlando on that same day. So this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole right here. But one thing I found really interesting is that Eileen Warnos was suspected of a murder of a man named James Weston Chambers back in 1984. So Chambers had been shot to death in his car on northbound I-75 and Denise will know why I find this interesting here in a second. But he had been shot to death in his car on northbound I-75, approximately one mile south of Corkscrew Road. Oh. So right by found, my neighborhood. That's my point. So I found this incredibly interesting because this is maybe five miles from where I live. Yeah, yeah. This so information was even... Each other. Yeah. Yeah, so I like I looked this and I'm like, what? This is crazy. But this information was even sent to the FBI for analysis to determine if the... it was sent. Found it out. Two syllables for square. It was even and sent who, to the Wait a minute, wait a minute. Which one of us is on edibles? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> one of us maybe yeah. <laughs> it's not the one talking <laughs> <laughs> oh boy okay. so information was sent to the FBI for analysis to determine if the MO matched the other known victims ultimately it was determined that Warnos did not kill Chambers. Oh, so it was just kind of like a copycat. Well, pre-copycat, if you would, because <laughs> that murder happened Somebody's before. mind reading. Yeah, somebody <laughs> happened. It's just weird. This is did they happen. ever, you know, just out of randomly, did they, out of randomness, did they ever determine who killed that person? You know, I didn't even look at that. I just I found it interesting because as I was doing the research for this episode, I happened to come across this, and when I saw, you know, a mile south of Corkscrew Road, I'm like, what? I didn't know anything about this victim, and there's a reason I didn't, because she didn't do it. But, you know, plus this took place, what, five years before any of the other murders? Yeah, but she was in Florida at that time, because she was bouncing in Florida in the early 70s. Right. She was in Florida in the time. And the main reason she was suspected and it was sent to the FBI for analysis is because she was in this area yeah. when the murder occurred. Yeah. So. Oh, my gosh. Now, let's go back to her. Now, the first victim. That was that if I if memory serves. And yes, I am on edibles. If memory serves, he was a sex offender. He had gone to jail. 
He was. Correct? That was never released to the jury, but okay. he had been convicted of rape. Okay. I'm in one of the M states. I can't remember which one. Okay. Yeah, I knew that there was like some something about him being a sex offender. And mm-hmm. that's kind of why we've sat there and, and have discussed that, you know, it is probable that he did assault her. It is absolutely probable. And again, mm-hmm. since neither of us were there and the only people who were there were the two and neither of them are in a position to tell us what happened, you know, right. it's really a, he, he said, she said, you know, without him being able to say anything. Right. And but, the issue when Eileen was eventually caught was that she kept changing her story about what happened with him. First, she told authorities that she was afraid that he was going to roll her, which means he was going to take her money and then he was going to rape her. And then she told authorities that he raped her vaginally and anally. And he ignored her screams of pain. You know, she also told authorities that he never raped her, that she did it because she wanted to, because she wanted to rob him. So it's like her story kept changing, which was a lot of the issues when it came to her defense. Oh, I think we've already kind of established that Eileen was her own worst enemy. And, you know, it goes back to the concept that sex workers are not listened to. And when you have somebody who's in a position where they are in general, not listened to or not believed coupled with a crime that doesn't matter whether or not you're a sex worker, you could be a freaking nun. And if you got raped, the police still want you to prove that you did not consent. So, right. And then you've got somebody who is in survival mode. Mm -hmm. So she's going to tell whatever story she thinks is going to get her out of trouble. But Mm -hmm. she doesn't really have the cognitive ability to understand reason and ration. So, yeah, that was my thought, too. You know, and the defense even tried to argue this Mm -hmm. during the trial. And I'll get more into that later. But we're not the only ones who've thought that, basically. Mm-hmm. All right. So Eileen was arrested in 1991 at a biker bar for an outstanding warrant on unrelated charges. While she was in custody, her girlfriend at the time, Tyria Moore, she was used by police to elicit a confession from Eileen. So obviously they got all of this on video. She confessed to all seven murders. Basically, she was just trying to save her girlfriend. She took all the blame. She says that Tyria didn't know anything about it, even though we know now that she at least knew some of what was going on. Oh, yeah. If she didn't help, she at least knew. Yeah, I, I, in my opinion... For what it's worth, I really do feel like she was messed up in her own way. Mm -hmm. But I think she just kind of used Eileen. I think that she took kind of advantage when somebody who has been that abused by the world encounters somebody who shows them like love and affection. Right. And I think, you know, it is not a physical threat to her. You know, Eileen never stated that she was gay or that she was bisexual. Her sexuality was really never discussed. But when you have somebody who was sexually assaulted as a child, that does impact their sexuality down the road. I'm not saying that, you know, somebody who's molested is going to be gay. I think that is kind of a deep, you know, your sexual orientation, that's pretty much hardwired. Like when you're born, you know, you're born with blue eyes, you're born with this, you know, your sexual orientation is part of that, you know, Mm -hmm. what you like and what you don't like. But when you are in puberty, that prepubescent and that puberty stage, that's the stage where you start figuring out. She never had that stage. 
Right. You know, because of the sexual assaults and because of everything that went on with her, she had that trauma that stunted that area of her growth. So, you know, it could be that here's this female who can't rape her, isn't a physical threat to her. Well, she could, but she didn't. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, you know, (laughs) she's not packing a weapon in her pant. Right. Yeah, that's the type of of thing that I'm saying. And so she kind of kind of cleaved on to that. So and I think that the girlfriend really did know what was going on and just really didn't care, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that the police using her, she saw an escape. Well, if I get her to confess to everything, I'm free. free. And she did. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't know. And, oh, I helped you guys. And like, I didn't know it was a problem. I don't buy that. Not for a minute. I think that she's a lot more complicit than is being presented. And I think that she should have been held a little more accountable than she was. Right. So my two cents. (laughs) I agree. So... Warnos went on trial for the murder of Richard Mallory on January 13th, 1992, in Volusia County, Florida. The prosecutor heavily based their case on the videotape confessions given to detectives during investigation. Prosecutors were also allowed to introduce evidence from the other murders during this trial due to the Williams rule, quote unquote, which allows evidence related to collateral crimes to be admitted if it helps to show motive, intent, knowledge, modus operandi, or lack of a mistake. And that quote comes from capitalpunishmentcontext.org. Okay, question. Was yeah. she charged for the murder, other murders? Or it was just that was... She was charged for the other murders. She was going to go to trial for each murder independently. But once she was convicted of the murder of Richard Mallory, she pled guilty to the rest. See, I don't think the other ones should have been ad- admissible because that's like saying, I believe that you stole my car, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're, we're catching you for stealing this other car. But I'm going to bring up the fact that I think you stole my car, even though we haven't charged you with it, nor have you been convicted of it. Right. Well, I mean, she was charged with it. And it, the reason that they were allowed to mention it during the trial is, and this is my law background coming through, because there was a pattern. They all had the same MO. So because the pattern was there, they could establish that if she was convicted of this, if they proved that she killed Richard Mallory, then they could prove that she killed all the rest of them too. Hmm. I mean, I see that. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the means that she was innocent. Um, mm-hmm. Do I think she killed him? Yes. I don't. I have objections to that rule of law, but. Yeah. You know, I have objections to most rules of law. Anyhow, <laughs> this isn't too special. This isn't too unknown. But yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I feel it's kind of shitty. I don't think that you should be allowed. They should be allowed to bring up crimes that you have not been convicted of because technically we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. You're absolutely right of the innocent until proven guilty. However, it appears, especially in, you know, the law of social media, mm-hmm. everybody's guilty until proven innocent, which really sucks. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah. you're not wrong. It, we have gone from shifting the burden of proof onto the state to putting that burden of proof onto the defense. Yeah. Right. So, which technically, again, it's not supposed to be that way. No. However, mm-hmm. that's typically how it happens. Mm-hmm. I don't like your client. Mm-hmm. So I think he's a bad guy. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that he killed this person, but mm-hmm. I don't like the way he's been looking at me mm-hmm. during this whole trial. So yeah. I'm going to mm-hmm. convict him just because I oh, think yeah. he looks shady. Yeah, I just don't like him. He reminds me of my ex-husband. Off with his yeah. head! <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So while Warnos recanted her initial confessions and claimed self-defense at the trial, the story she told is that, there we go again, regarding the seven murders varied each time they were retold, which led prosecutors to dismiss these claims. 
So Warnos told investigators early into the interrogation that Mallory had picked her up while hitchhiking, and then they went to a secluded area of the woods to engage in acts of prostitution. Warnos told investigators that at that point, she was convinced Mallory was going to roll her, quote unquote, take her money and rape her. Warnos grabbed her bag that held a gun, and the pair both struggled for the bag. Warnos prevailed and pointed the gun at Mallory, saying, and I quote, you son of a bitch, I knew you were going to rape me. To which Mallory responded, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. So at this point, Warnos shot Mallory at least once while he was still sitting behind the steering wheel. Mallory crawled out of the car's driver's side and shut the car door. Warnos said she ran around to the front of the car and shot Mallory again, causing him to fall to the ground. While he was laying there, Warno shot him twice more, went through his pockets, and concealed the body beneath a piece of rug, and then drove in his car. What is wrong with me? <laughs> I don't know. I've had my edibles, so I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah. See, if that were me, I'd be going, no, 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 no. <laughs> My tongue is dirty. <laughs> okay. So, you know, that, it's very easy to armchair warrior these things, you know, where we sit there and say, well, you know, it could be this, could be that. Do I believe she thought she was going to be hurt? Yeah. I mean, I'm basing that on his history, you know, mm -hmm. and when you take somebody with a history of being violent towards women, and somebody who grew up being a victim of said violence, they meet. It's pretty much a perfect storm. Right. You know, and I really feel like if maybe she had just shot him once and drove off and immediately reported it, it'd be a different story. But possibly. But I don't think her mind worked that way. No, no, not at all. For her, it was kill or be killed. Exactly. Survival mode. Right. She was in full survival mode. So, now, what do you know about the other victims? So, I mentioned the other victims earlier in the podcast about how they were found, but I actually didn't find a whole lot on the other victims. Just kind of what they did for a living, where they were last seen. I didn't see anything that says that anybody else was a convicted sex offender. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I think the first one was really the trigger. I mm -hmm. think that the others, I think she just went into like a trauma response. Right. You know, I agree. I think there was like a, a switch flipped in her head and that was it. And because I tried, you know, I've looked at some of the other ones. The only thing that really comes out is the rap sheet on the first one, mm -hmm. you know, and then the rest all kind of seem innocuous. Like they would not, you know, there's no history and again, we don't know what people are like behind private doors, you know, right. we don't know what people are really like, but the, from all accounts, it does not seem that the other victims were, you know, violent men or, or abusive men. Right. And I just think that it got to the point after Richard Mallory, where every man that she saw was trying to hurt her, mm -hmm. whether he really was or not, that was her perception. Oh, yeah. We've we've seen that, you know, you and I working in healthcare, mm -hmm. with you working deeply in you're in a psych facility at this point in time. I work in healthcare too, and I've seen a lot of psych issues and not just psych issues, but like how dementia works and things like that. You can't really use logic when people get into these states because they are just in that zone and their reality is their reality whether or not it matches everybody else. Like she was really in that every man at this point in time is going to hurt me because every man in my life has hurt me. You know? Exactly. And you're absolutely right to these people. When they get to this point and they're in a psychological break, there is no such thing as logic. Mm -hmm. They believe you're not going to get through to them. No, you're not. It's like when you're trying to deal with somebody who's panicked. When I was back in high school, I did lifeguarding for the YMCA. And I remember in taking the course, you know, where you're swimming and they're, they're dropping you in the pool and all that other crap. They were talking about if you come up to somebody who is panicked, who's drowning and is completely panicked, mm -hmm. <laughs> they literally told us to punch them out. 
Oh yeah. Like in the water. Because they'll Let's claw you know. at you. They'll take you both down. Yeah. Because they're like, they will literally take you down with them because they're in panic mode and there's no reason or ration for that. And exactly. I remember thinking, oh my God, that's wild. I'm here to save you, but I'm going to beat the shit out of you first so I can save you. Like I got to beat your ass so I can drag you to the shore so you don't fucking drown, you know? And it's, and, and you know, I don't mean to laugh and I don't mean to make it funny, but panic is, is really, you know, once you panic, you know, there, there's a difference between fear and panic. Fear is a survival mm-hmm. mode. That is something that's a survival instinct. So like it heightens if you get into a situation and, you know, having worked in behavior homes and having worked it with, you know, shall we say, you know, potentially violent, potentially dangerous populations, you know, having a little bit of fear or starting to feel like, okay, the situation's off. That's a survival thing. What do you need to do? What are your next steps? What's your plan? You know, you can focus with it. I tell people you should lean into that fear and really use it. Use your senses. But when you panic, you're useless. You can't oh, yeah. save yourself. You can't help anybody else. Now a threat to everybody else's safety. Absolutely. It's the panic person. So I think she was really kind of in that state. Maybe not a panic, but on that borderline. And then when she got into a situation where maybe a man said, you know, one of the other gentlemen that picked her up said something that triggered that panic. Mm-hmm. You know, we have no idea what the exchange was between her and the first victim. And we have no idea if somebody then said something that triggered that response, that almost PTSD right. that we talked about, you know, that PTSD and can turn to panic and that's it. And those guys were dying, even if they did not present a threat because they triggered something inadvertently. Exactly. So the defense claimed that the statements that Warnos made in the confessions were obtained illegally, despite the fact that she was read her Miranda rights and she was provided a public defender who did advise Warnos not to make any statements. The defense claimed that Warnos' relationship with Tyria Moore was exploited to obtain the confession which so impaired her mental state and understanding of her rights and the advice of counsel. These arguments were rejected by the trial court, however. Mm-hmm. Warnos yeah. did testify on her own behalf against the advice of counsel, but this appeared to have backfired when she became angry and agitated during cross-examination. She was just mentally not well. That was just, you know, I understand you have the right to speak at your own trial, Again, she's her own worst enemy. Absolutely. So, after only two hours of deliberations, Warnos was found guilty of capital murder and armed robbery. Armed robbery? Armed robbery. Robbie? <laughs> Robert, do we have a, a conversation, <laughs> Robert? <laughs> uh, anyway, she was found guilty of capital murder and armed robbery, and she was sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And she was executed. She was. She was executed on October 9th, 2002 at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this happened after, you know, she had fired her attorneys. She'd waived her appeals despite lingering questions about her sanity. But she ultimately volunteered for the death penalty. And she told everybody that she'd kill again. Yeah, I think... At that point in time, she was just done. Like I said, oh, yeah. she had a shit childhood. She was abused her entire life. You know, she had that one opportunity that we talked about, you know, at the beginning that she self-sabotaged. So honestly, I think her waving everything and the one person, the one person that she cared about that showed her decency, you know, betrayed her. Exactly. I don't blame her for being done. Oh, yeah. and. When she did ask the court to be put to death, she said, quote, I killed those men, robbed them as cold as ice, and I do it again, too. Mm-hmm. I think she was done. And I'm not by any means excusing, you know, the six out of the seven murders. I think the first one, again, you up uh, cell block tango. I think he yeah, had right? it coming. You know, <laughs> like, he had it coming. Okay. No, I can't sing, uh, but it doesn't stop me crying. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, out of everybody that we talk about and about every name that you and I brought up and all the ones that we've talked about, all the ones that I see, 
she's the only one I feel bad for. She really, that, you know, that's the only one I have sympathy for. I'm not excusing murder before anybody starts jumping on that. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this woman had no chance in life. The one time she was presented with an opportunity, she was so fucking damaged that she blew it up on, her, on herself. Definitely. One thing I found really interesting was that her attorneys, and there were so many people that were questioning her sanity, mm-hmm. but she was found competent for execution by three psychiatrists. And I have to question that. I mean... I thought I was questioning that too. I found that really suspicious. Do you know what it kind Just of reminds me of? And I don't mean to interrupt you, but you know the no, squirrel crossing traffic that I have <laughs> for a brain. For three different psychologists to find her competent to for the death penalty, to be eligible for the death penalty, is kind of in that same category of the surgeons who performed like the feeding tube for Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Despite, you know, oh. they did all those surgeries, they did all those treatments. And I know we're going to, we'll talk about her later, but yeah. everything that they did, how did these doctors, and I think we hold doctors to a standard of like, listen, you went to school, you're supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to trust you yet, <laughs> you know, you hear about shit like this. You know, and I agree with you. However, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, but you've got to think too that doctors rely on us for our medical um, histories, mm-hmm. especially if they don't know us because they haven't been treating us for our entire lives. So in Gypsy Rose Blanchard's case, the doctors in that case had relied on her mother for mm-hmm. her medical history and her mother was lying through her teeth. However, oh, yeah. I do believe that these doctors should have done their due diligence and tested for some of this shit that her mom said that she had that she didn't have. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I know that doctor shopping, but getting back to Eileen, it blows my mind that these three different doctors went in, sat down and talked to her, you know. And not one of them had questions mm, about her sanity. And I realized that was in uh, the early 2000s. But it's still saying we have so much work to do when it comes to mental health, especially in this country. Oh, absolutely. I think that, well, I can say this, that women are discriminated against medically. And that goes especially for women of color. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the fact that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed than a man, women are more likely to have symptoms dismissed outright. You know, the medical gaslighting that goes on for women is insane and it's still going on now. So, you know, you kind of wonder about these individuals and I don't know if they were male or they were female. I don't know their names, but you wonder like in 2000, the year 2000, <laughs> you know, we're talking. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. ago. Yeah, I mean, we had still, hmm. well, it was 2002 that she was executed. Yeah, but you're thinking so that was 19 years ago. Yeah, and you're looking at 2000, 2002, that, that time frame. Why were we not looking at trauma? Why were we not going back on all this? You know, like, right, and that's a great question because they absolutely should have been taking all of this stuff into consideration because how can you go through something like that and not have psychological issues? I'm just saying the, the fact that she was a child when she gave her baby up. Mm-hmm. Big red flag. You know, the emotional trauma response for that. And then to be like, well, the baby's father was my grandfather's friend. You know, who are these doctors? Because I want to punch him in the face. And hopefully they're right. not. They're not, you yeah. know. But still, it is hard because there's still a lot to, to be done. I, when my son was, was younger and we were actually looking for a therapist, one of the therapists we had, I fired. I I straight up fired him to his face because, you know, he was asking uh, Bug what was going on. And he said, oh, you know, I was joking. And he was like, no, you weren't. I stopped it right then and there. And this was, I want to say, 2008 when that happened. And the doctor was like, because he was trying to say, tell a joke. But when you're on the spectrum, Jokes can be hard, especially when you're younger. They can come out like you're serious and not joking. Yeah, yeah, like you're not joking. And he had called his sister fat. 
But it, what, what it was was that they were all kind of joking around with each other and just, you know, how siblings will poke fun at each other. And he came out with that. And he was like, he told the doctor I was joking. And he's like, no, you weren't. I stopped it. I said, stop. Or I'm like, oh, we're done. Don't you dare tell my son what he was or was not feeling. That's not what right. you're here for. So I fired him. And I say this because I came back to this guy, one of the homes that I was working in, it was a home for children with developmental disabilities and behavioral issues. And we had a patient there who would play in their own feces. Mm-hmm. And this, and it ended up being the same doctor that I had fired. I'm enjoying the story just a little too much. And the doctor <laughs> surmised that why this was happening was because they enjoyed the smell and feel of feces and recommended buying like feces spray. I worked with this kid for two weeks. Do you know what the issue was? They enjoyed getting a shower, uh, not a shower, a bath afterwards. So they were basically rewarding bad behavior. They were rewarding the negative behavior. So when I had the kid, when that happened, I would give them a shower and not Mm -hmm. a bath. So their needs were being uh, met, but not in the way that, that they wanted. So right. because I did that and I proved that what it was that they were being rewarded. Oh, I cannot tell you how much joy I took in telling that, that psychologist he was wrong. So wrong. Oh, I, oh, I can totally imagine that. Oh, it's just so great. And again, <laughs> as, you, as you know me, I'm not so, well, somebody who goes, mm, I hate to say I told you so. No, I fucking live for that shit. <laughs> I live for being right. I live for going, ha, told you. And I did. Oh, I did. Yeah, he was just, uh, that doctor was not a fan of mine. So, But, you know, there's still <laughs> a long way to go in, in that. It's still, to this day, very hard to find therapist that you feel good about and you know so there is kind of a a comment on the you know the practice of of mental health it's hard to find services especially here in florida i mean Mm -hmm. it's incredibly limited yeah sorry a little (laughs) you know there's not probably i can name on one hand the number of mental health services in our area Mm -hmm. It's two, right? It's Salus Care and Park Royal. No, there's, well, I mean, there's also Naples, mm-hmm. David Lawrence and Naples. And then there's, what's it called? Bay, Punta Gorda, the one in Punta Gorda. Bayshore? But yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, Jacaranda. There's a nursing home in Jacaranda. That's way up there. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, but, just not. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, like I said, one hand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and one, two, you know, only three of those are crisis stabilization units. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the mental health issues here in Florida, when you think about the addiction issues we have here, that's just, it's underserving. It's the needs of the community are not being met. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, There was one other thing I just wanted to mention just because I found it very interesting. There were a couple articles that I read where they were nicknaming Eileen. I had never really heard any of her nicknames other than the first serial killer of America or the first female serial killer. I heard monster. Huh? I heard monster. I heard her say I'm a monster. Right. Monster. But they were calling her the highway hooker and the damsel of death. Highway hooker. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, because that, that's not prejudicial at all. No. Oh, my God. Can that Highway be my name? Ho- I mean, if you want it, I'll be the damsel <laughs> of, of death. That's fine. You can be the <laughs> If we're divvying up your nicknames, you can be the hooker all you want. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'll make very much money, but I can try. I'm just saying, apparently, you know, we've already determined that, you know, men are pretty much not discriminatory when it comes to that, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. That is true. (laughs) Just putting that out there. I'm a little picky, though. (laughs) That's my problem. I don't think Highway Hooker would be a good job for you. I don't think it'd be a good (laughs) job. Probably not. No. No. Mm. 
Uh, you're just not doing it for me? No, like you're just, uh, the vibe is off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Lord, help me! Yeah, I'd be hor- I'd be a terrible hooker. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna have to pass. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the problem is, but you know, I just don't have anything going on in here. Yeah, just the connection. We, there, there's no spark. <laughs> exactly. I got nothing. Oh. I'll take money though. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for meeting me. <laughs> Thanks for pulling over for me. That'll be five dollars. <laughs> yes, you're paying me to reject you. That's what it is. <laughs> so you didn't realize some guys would like that. I'm just saying. Yeah. I was like, if you want what to get into that, you know, the BDSM, B, I don't know how, whatever initials those are. I mean, I mean, th- seriously, if a guy wants to pay me to tase his balls, I'm all in. I'm not going to turn that down. You know, dude, there are guys that would love that. I'm just saying, you know, that's not an <laughs> offer I would turn down. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do it for free because, you know, no, I'm not stupid. If, if you pay me, then I have proof that you wanted it. There was consent. <laughs> so you can't go to the I'm going to need to. I'm going to need you to sign this consent form before we can get started. (laughs) I need you on video and you must be believable. (laughs) Here's the video. So you're going to pay me $500 to stick this taser on your ball sack. Okay. I'm in. (laughs) I don't think Dave would object either. He'd be like, guys, come on. He'd be like, wait, she's not doing it to me. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> I'm definitely not buying your ass a taser now. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> you need it? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, yeah, I might need a right. taser for the roosters down in fucking Immokalee, so... <laughs> I'm salty, okay? This is like the third time. This is the third time. All right, so our listeners are not going to know what you're talking about, so now you're going to have to tell everybody what you're talking about. Okay, so long story short, I went to go find a person in Immokalee, and when I got out of my car, I seen a chicken, which was like, okay. And then when I walked around to like the fence and I was trying to look in there, I seen this rooster come out. And I'm like, no, sir, no, mm-mm, not today, not today. And he starts like, I'm like, I'm not near him. I'm standing still. He's walking towards me. And I'm like, and he's starting to do that puff up thing. And I'm like, listen, sir, I'm not, I'm not here for you. I am not here for your woman. I'm like, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to do me. You do you. Yeah, he wasn't having that. So he starts doing that whole big puff up thing. And I'm like, nope, I know how this horror movie ends. So I basically ran and jumped into my car, which, you know, thank God I didn't lock it because I was standing right next to it. So, yeah, that jumped into it. And he like, he's like power walking, you know. I don't know if you've ever seen a rooster speed walk. It's kind of freaky. It's a little scary because they will just ruin your whole fucking day. And again, roosters are assholes. They will ruin your day because the day ends in Y. You know, that's what it is. But this isn't the first time because when I called, my supervisor called me and I told her I got chased by a rooster. And she's like, well, you were in Immokalee. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Okay. I know. And she's like, this isn't the first time. And I said, no. I I asked her if she recalled back in 2019, uh, she had called me and I told her that I could not talk because I had the Cujo version of a rooster (laughs) on the hood of my husband's truck. So it just wasn't going to happen. Now, what had happened in that case, I was trying to pull down this road to see a member and her son was outside and I'm like, I seen the rooster, so I'm going, like, really slow because I figured it's like a bird. It's going to fly off. No, no. That rooster took that as a personal insult. <laughs> and the dog is going, you know, and he's, like, puffed up and doing all this other shit. And I'm like, I just want to get closer to the house so I can go <laughs> see my member so I can do my job. And the son's out there going, just run it over. I'm like, sir. <laughs> Sir, I stop and I check boxes and bags on the side of the road to make sure nobody's thrown away baby animals, okay? Like, 
I, I don't have that gene in me. Okay. I, I can't just do that. And then like, you know, he goes to try to shoot it and I move the inch, the truck forward. This motherfucker jumps up onto the hood and is like outside the windshield. Like, let's go. Let's go. And I'm like, and at that point in time, my supervisor decided to call and I'm like, I got Cujo and rooster form on the hood of my car. Now's not a good time. I'm going to have to call you back. So yeah, that was the first time. And then I got chased a different rooster around a boarding house in Immokalee. So yeah. What does every time roosters? They don't I, like you. No, no. And there's like, they're fucking stray chickens and roosters. Nobody knows who they belong to. They're just around. And I'm like, well, how do you really have funny. stray roosters? How do you have stray chickens? Well, <laughs> stray chickens you've got a stray rooster. Point. You have a stray rooster because there is a guard rooster on your road. He no, walks that's up and down on that long ass dirt road. Yeah, that's on Wildcat. No, we know who he belongs to. Like he belongs to the house that's over there. He's just out, you know, fucking everybody guarding. up. Out. Yeah. <laughs> he's just guarding, making sure you you pass the vibe check. That's what he's doing. So yeah, yeah. Roosters just don't like me. Birds typically don't like me. So you know, the feelings mutual at this point in time. But yeah, so today it was just one of those things. Like we have not been in the field. We just started going back in the field this month. I think they sent out an email that said it had been 586 days since our, you know, since our last field visit. So Damn. here it is. I finally get this is my, you know, third trip to Immokalee this month. And of course, within the first month of returning to the field, I have a rooster trying to square up on me. And I'm like, listen. I understand that you wake up and choose violence. I'm trying to be a nice person. I just, I would prefer the stray kittens, you know? I'm okay with those. Oh, man. So there's your little, you know, entertainment with Denise for tonight. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was the story of Eileen Warnos's crimes. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about the psychology and law, and we'll be joined by Spencer Cordell. We're very excited about that. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and leave us a comment. And remember, when we get to a million, we're going to do a live cast with me high on edibles. It'll be a good time. Oh, it'll be a hoot. (laughs) You won't want to miss that. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. We'll find all the cannabis fans here. That's what it'll be. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to listen to those chicks. They talk about weed. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> and on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and end it here tonight. So thanks good for night. listening. Good and night. And have a good night. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>